Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Duncan P. Forge, author of Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale. With Flying Kai, Forge has spun an inventive yarn starting with a pelican occupying the center of the novel and no shortage of talking animals dotting the landscape. Yeah, you heard me. Lots of talking animals. In fashioning this distinctive narrative, Forge cultivates themes highlighting the dire importance of protecting the environment and wildlife while noting how climate change has already upended those things. Our pelican hero, Kai, who's restless and sometimes impulsive befitting his adolescence, embarks on an odyssey aiming to travel to the magical mountain, a journey in which he joins forces with a blue-footed booby bird from Baja named Pancho. Along the way, they meet an array of critters, including at a thinly disguised facsimile of SeaWorld, raising some probing questions about captive and performing animals. Also, a tiny bit of trivia, Duncan Forge played a role in my being named Duncan. We'll likely touch on this, too, as we discuss various aspects of flying Kai, a pelican's tail, and more with its author, Duncan P. Forty, in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Vegan Evan, considered the world's youngest certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. He's 12 years old. Vegan Evan is participating in the Animal Rights Panel presented at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest, returning this year to Perry Harvey Senior Park in Tampa on November 5th, running from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. I interviewed Vegan Evan five years ago, almost to the day as a prelude to his talk at that veg fest when he was just seven right now though let's discuss flying kai a pelican's tail the innovative new book by our first guest today duncan p forge with a reminder that i invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 this is duncan forge on talking animals on wmf good morning duncan good morning duncan how are you doing Doing good. It's rare that someone says good morning, Duncan, and the other person says good morning, Duncan, back. So I think we should uh, bask in that for a moment. But um, you know, you know, there there is a third Duncan involved in this this book as well, and that is uh, my nephew, Duncan Forgy, also who did the cool yeah. illustrations, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's three Duncans involved in this. Wow. I don't know if we can up the ante. If we, get, if we can get to four by the end of our conversation here, we'll really have something here. But uh, three is pretty impressive already, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations, first of all, on Flying Kites. Really, as I've noted uh, online and just here in the intro, uh, just an innovative, adventurous book, which I really look forward to discussing with you, and we absolutely will in a moment. But first, let's find out a bit about you and your background. Let's discuss your early years, especially in the way this period shaped your sensibility that will later figure into our conversation about Flying Kai. So talk a little bit about your childhood and, and where you grew up and, and how that influenced you. Well, as, as you know, because we grew up together almost, you know, we were different ages, but we, uh, your, your cousin was probably one of my oldest and dearest friends uh, from where we grew up, which was on the, on the California coast, Southern California, in a town uh, known as Newport Beach. Um, and I still use the word town, even though it's no longer that. Um, but we grew up in a, in a Southern California that was absolutely, um, you know, magical in its, its natural setting. Um, that's where I really, really understood what is the importance of nature and children and having the ability to run around freely into, um, in a, a natural setting. Yeah. Um, as, as you probably remember, we had huge migrations of swallows once a year that would come up to the, to the local mission. And, um, and I mean, these six, they traveled 6,000 miles to get there, and, and that has basically been disrupted. We had uh, 
terns and monarch butterflies and, and that would do these tremendous migrations. And, and Southern California was just as wide open, a beautiful, somewhat agricultural at that time area that gave us, you know, not very far away. We had tranches. We had exotic insects. We had rat, snakes of all kinds, including, I don't know if you knew this because it was almost before yours and my time there, that we had uh, rattlesnakes on the the bluffs above the beach. Wow. Um, and, yeah. And, I didn't know that. That, that. that would have changed my behavior considerably if I had known that. But, well, uh, yeah. The early residents of Corona del Mar, you know, had to beat the, the, the rattlesnakes away. So yeah. It, wow. It, it, you know, in, in one generation, meaning, um, you know, uh, but by the time that you were young and I was young, and by the time we're now where we are, and it it is completely changed. It's yeah. completely a different place. Well, one uh, thing. Well, sorry, I didn't go ahead, Doug. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. No, I was just going to say one change. I didn't even know about the the rattlesnakes. So, that, like you say, that was probably just before at least my time, and maybe it sounds like maybe a bit before yours as well. But the other thing, which I guess I wasn't fully aware of, that you mentioned a moment before that. So, are you saying the the swallows no longer make their annual migration to San Juan Capistrano? Well, Saint Joseph's Day is still a celebrated uh, holiday in San Juan Capistrano. Uh, but the the you know the extent of the birds and the numbers of birds that do show up um, is is a lot smaller than it used to be. In fact, where you and I used to live, um, I was fortunate enough to have a swimming pool in my in my home, and we used to celebrate it. About 24, 48 hours later, the swallows would come to our house because they used the water from our swimming pool to build those little mud. Uh, nests that they built in the eaves of the houses. Wow! And, um, and so, um, so that was a really important day, you know, for us to have the swallows return to our house. So, well, how did they select your guys's? I mean, I obviously had a pool, but I mean, I mean, it wasn't as common as it is in Florida. But uh, other people had a pool too. So, why did the swallows go to your place? Well, I think it was just that uh, I think they were around and, and uh, you know, they would dive down and, and take up a little bit of water and, and, and which was used to make their mud, mud net. Wow. I don't think, you know, it, it just was, but it was one of those, uh, what's the word? Is this one of those natural uh, uh, phenomenons that, that you see in nature? And I, yeah. It's not a very well said, but. You know, things just happen with nature that, that we can't predict and we can't, you know, but we can sure as heck change it. And we have done uh, that to Southern California. Uh, just a little side note, uh, my gener- my family goes back six generations in, in Southern California, all the way to, the you know, the Pueblo de Los Angeles and the, and the, and the uh, uh, you know, the uh, Spanish families that own some of the, uh, uh, the big ranches and rancheros. Uh, but it's like, it's like I, I lived in Southern California. It was everything to me. Yeah. And to watch in three generations that change completely has just been, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah. That's why I'm now sitting on this beautiful island in the the Pacific Ocean. Well, we'll definitely get into that because that, to me, that's super interesting and it is all part of a piece of what we're talking about now and just the changes that you're mentioning and how rapidly they occurred which is everything about that is kind of disturbing, including the speed. But um, but I should say, I guess this is as good a time as any to say that we have a bit of trivia or family lore involved, I should say my family, because as I mentioned in the opening, you played a role in my being named Duncan because um, 
uh, I had an older, you had, uh, I had an older brother, Gordon, and it turns out, I guess, you had a brother, Gordon, as well, right? Correct. Yeah. So the way I understand it from, from my brother is that when my mom was pregnant with me and they were trying to figure out names if it was a boy, and uh, I think my brother, Gordon, said, well, why not name uh, this guy Duncan? Which would be in par- parallel with my friend Duncan, who's an older brother named Gordon, and I don't know. I don't know if that was the only reason, but it obviously was a, a factor because here I am named Duncan. So uh, yeah. anyway, yeah. I, have you I def- heard the same thing. You know that it, that we were we're related name wise, and I I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and again, like you said, we got another Duncan uh, in the in the flying Kai realm, yeah. and and uh, who knows before we're done talking, maybe some other Duncan <laughs> will appear on the scene. But um, but this is as good a time as any really to start addressing. Flying Kai. So, as I understand it, this book has traveled a long and winding road involving a gestation period of some 50 plus years. So, I don't know all the stories and details behind that history, but as a reader, I'm guessing the five decades of history in one form or another help account for Flying Kai emerging as, as a just like the smooth, inventive triumph. It's it's um, really honed and cohesive saga that in lesser hands or maybe with less work and fewer drafts could have really jumped the rails and become kind of a bit messy or a bit sprawling, but it's not. And, and so maybe uh, helpful for this part of the conversation again later on for sure. Can you present like a, just sort of a short synopsis from your standpoint of Flying Kai, like just like an elevator pitch kind of level? Well, basically I started writing this book in 1969 when I was a senior in college in L.A. And and what I never realized, Duncan, was that, that by doing that, you know, that was my um, my teenager. Uh, Kai is a teenager. He's a young, like you, you said all that at the beginning. And so I had an adolescent, you know, an older adolescent writing this story about an adolescent. And so that gave me everything I needed to do to create this wonderful character and all of his insecurities and all his, you know, his, his, his ability to be impatient and, you know, wanting to know about what's going to happen in life, but not listening to the people that were important to him around him. Yeah. And, and I, like you say, I carried it with me and wanting to be a writer, but getting completely um, distracted as a teacher, as, as a, uh, even in business, I went into I went into real estate for a while. That that was a very interesting um, uh, and kind of a difficult job. And and uh, but anyway, that's not the important part. The important part is flying Kai went with me. And when I got to Hawaii, I had the opportunity to sit back down with the book and really go back over it and really rewrite it. And so what I found, and I, this was not intentional, was that the young young Duncan uh, was able to write about that aspect of the book. And then the older, wiser Duncan was able to put in, um, you know, some wisdom that an older person would be would be saying about the trials of this young bird. Yeah. Now. Now, also, I think it's important to note that it isn't about it's all about talking animals. It's all about birds. And, and I mean, there are humans in the story, but they are like shadow figures in the background. They do not carry a, an important role at all other than just interfering with the life of the animal. Yeah, they're, they're kind of intrusive, really, uh, all, all, yeah. the, all things being equal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's loaded with talking animals, which, of course, I naturally love. But part of the thing I think that I guess I was touching on a little bit or trying to is that the, the fact that it extended over to whatever extent you were active with it, sometimes obviously more or less than others over the 50-plus years here that we're talking about. But I think that's also what accounts for, like you say, the older Duncan working on what the younger Duncan had done. And the 
sort of depth that there is this because I mean if you just said to someone well here's a it's a novel and the main character is a pelican and there's a lot of talking animals well again that would that would appeal to me but a lot of people say well that doesn't sound like necessarily my cup of tea but when you get into like the themes that are addressed and again the depth that I think could only have come from having coming back to this book re- repeatedly I'm guessing over those 50 years or even if it was just those two main points at the beginning and the end I mean that lends itself such a additional substance and it's about a lot more than somebody would have initially thought. Well, and and I thank you for that. And yes, I think I think that's I feel that um, in the book. But one of the things that is so unique is as I went through um, this this journey of becoming a, a published author. And anybody out there who's become a published author author knows what I'm talking about. It's not an easy journey. It's not. It's not. You know something that just happened. Uh, and and with this book, um, I would be talking to people of, of knowledge in, in the industry, and they would say, well, you know, what what is the genre of the book? I mean, what is who are you aiming this book at? Yeah. And of course, and of course, they would always come to the YA because of the character of, of um, uh, you know, of Kai. He's sure. a teenager. So it's a YA book. But because it was inspired back 50 years ago by a gentleman uh, named Richard Bach and Jonathan Livingston Siegel, it takes a new life on it because it, it when you talk to an older person who knows about uh, uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, they're, they light up. They're, they get a smile on their face and they, they light up and they say, oh, yeah, I remember that book. Sure. Well, that was, that was the book that inspired this young Duncan to write it. And ironically, and, and this tells you a little bit about me, is that I can remember being that young Duncan and thinking and looking at the picture of Richard Bach, who was an old man, you know, and it, to me, he wasn't that old, yeah. as old as I am. But I, I used to look at that picture and go, how can, a, how can an old guy become a writer like that about, you know, something that's so important to us younger people? And so now I've become that, you know, same age as, as Richard Bach. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm trying to do the same thing in that sense. Well, so so was it stri- pretty much primarily the influence then of, of Richard Bach and Jonathan Livingston Because I I, I I was curious what spurred the book idea as a twenty year old. I mean, I know you're talking about kind of an adolescent and reflecting at the time when you began, like you were an adolescent, so you're really kind of writing uh, obviously largely about yourself and and some of the related things. But it's still pretty ambitious for an undergrad college kid to say, "Hey, I'm going to write a novel now." I mean, even a English major or a creative writing student at twenty to think in those terms. I mean, that's unusual. I had a teacher, and it was so many times this story goes back to a, a special teacher, and I had a uh, professor at, at, at SC, and her name was Ann Pierce Kramer, and and it was during the kind of rebellious period of, of the 60s, and she had a she was able to get a class called censorship. And so, of course, being a young, you know, uh, uh, active person of the 60s, I wanted to take it. Yeah. Well, she, she just happened to be a movie movie actress of the 1950s, not, you know, super famous for her acting. Um, she was also, a, but, you know, she's a beautiful, wonderful lady. Um, and, um, and she was the uh, ex-wife of Stanley Kramer. Oh, wow. The producer. Yeah, producer of the world's greatest comedy, in my mind. It's a mad, bad, mad, bad world. Yeah. Well, she she took, you know, she had this class, and, and, um, and at that time, I was writing poetry in my, when I got bored in my history classes, and I was doing, I was writing, but I was not a, I was not an English major or even a writer in that sense. Yeah. And, and, and she gave me an assignment to do a, a, a paper, a term paper, on anything we wanted to do that dealt with, um, uh, you know, censorship. 
So my uh, father, being sort of an intellectual of his his sort, he had a uh, there were four books uh, and magazines. They were hardbound magazine called Eros by Ralph Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and those books were extremely uh, controversial. Um, uh, some of the first pictures of a black and a white woman uh, without clothes on, you know, posing for beautiful photographs. Some 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 articles that talked about some of the things that were just uh, forbidden in those days. Yeah. So I used those magazines as the basis for my my article. I mean, my my term paper. Yeah. And she just went off on it. She just told me she built me up to such a place that I I decided I wanted to be a writer. Wow. Um, and um, you know, and how really really fantastic educators can do that for a person. Now, of course, being my personality. I'm, I delayed it 50 years, which is kind of sad because I kind of think back about if I only would have just dedicated myself in. But, hey, they, the experiences I've had in those 50 years is making me the kind of writer I am today. Right. And the result is the book that, that I hold in my hand now that arguably, at least, just wouldn't be quite the same book. Well, obviously, it wouldn't be the same, but I, I mean, in terms of probably quite the same caliber, maybe just because there's so much of the older Duncan and the seasoning and wisdom and life experience that went in there that if it had come out much sooner, it would probably stop short of being the book that it is today. That's correct. And and the Jonathan Livingston Siegel is, a, you know, it's a little bit dated because of its, its, you know, the names of the characters and things of that nature. And that's something I had to do when, it, when I got over here was I had to uh, make it more contemporary. And, and and make it um, and that's where uh, and it ended up beautifully in in, in so many ways because I had uh, some really good people working with me to make sure that I, I did it right and um, but it's a long journey to to to, uh, to be an author of any yeah well this book this book has certainly traveled a long way in fact I got to wondering uh, just because it might be illuminating in multiple ways including helping us track various kinds of environmental threats and climate change over multiple decades in what ways just at least uh, in broad strokes does the flying Kai of 1969 resemble today's flying Kai um, I as a teenager it always I mean he, he's you know teenagers are always, you know, when, as an educator, um, you know, the one thing I always said was that, you know, kids never change. I mean, a four-year-old is a four-year-old, a six-year-old is a six-year-old, a 15-year-old is a 15-year-old. What changes is the environment around them. Yeah. And that's, and that's what makes we older generations look back at younger people and go, well, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Well, yes, they do, because they're being, they're being the age that they are, you know I mean? Right. Uh, but, and um, and I think and so Kai's always going to be Kai now, yeah. and, and just interesting because of uh, uh, my influence by John, you know Jonathan Livingston Siegel, uh, uh, the, the name his name was not Kai. His name was uh, 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 let me just. But he had a more uh, sort of standardized name. Okay, I was secretly hoping you were going to say his name back then was Duncan, but I guess that was too much to hope for. So, <laughs> but no, he he basically was a character of the nineteen sixties. Yeah, uh, which was not as sensitive to all the groups of of, um, of young people that are out there today talking, and you know, in fact, you're. Your vegan Evan, I just I'm falling in love with him, and I haven't even met him yet. Yeah, uh, you know the the young people of today are just so uh, much more 
uh, blended in some in some ways that we were when we were young. Yeah. And uh, and so, uh, but anyway, so those kinds of changes had to take place. Uh, but for the most part, he's the same exact bird. And if I wrote it today, I mean, he'd still be a, a teenager. Yeah. Um, and, and and there's not much that changes with 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 young people. Yeah. Well, let me let folks know who might only have tuned in a bit late. No, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Duncan Forge, author of Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale, an inventive new novel with a pelican as its uh, hero, really, essentially, bringing with talking animals while cultivating themes, highlighting the importance of protecting the environment and wildlife. If you have a question for Duncan, that is our guest, Duncan, uh, would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So let's talk a little bit about what I call the pelican in the room. So why is a pelican the hero of your novel? It sounds like that was that was one constant throughout all the iterations over all the decades. Uh, how come? Because of living on the coast and watching pelicans and watching how how calm and beautiful they add they add absolutely they're they're gorgeous to watch as they they form their their um, what I call in the book trains and and uh, uh, you know and they're either in a, in a sort of a half circle or they're in a line or um, and they just cruise and they just. You know, they're just absolutely one of the most calming uh, scenes anywhere along the, the uh, coastline. And um, I just have always loved pelicans, you know. Yeah. They're, you know, they're kind of big and goofy looking, but no, they're they're absolutely wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, birds. Yeah. Other than just what you've already mentioned, are there other key traits or qualities about pelicans that you thought, well, that's... I mean, it sounds like it's obviously like you're looking around with the Jonathan Livingston seagull thing. Okay, well, seagull's taken. Let me look. But was it always going to be a bird of some kind as opposed to, you know, mammal or some other kind of critter? And, and that made sense. Because his, you know, he lived on uh, Anacapa Island off of the Santa Barbara coast. Yeah, um, I wanted, you know, I needed, I needed some place for him to travel from and to, and and there's a that's one of the um, colonies for brown pelicans. And also, I, and there, thank you for asking that. Because also, there we had just come through the DDT scares um, as a young person um, mm. back in the 1960s when the uh, the poisons were coming down the rivers and the uh, the brown pelicans were endangered and then you know moving towards extinction uh, because their eggs wouldn't hold their the uh, the, the young birds inside. So uh, that I think I think you know I hadn't thought about that, Duncan, but I think that was probably what really uh i wanted to uh, uh memorialize the pelican for for surviving yeah i, mean, I think they did survive and yeah they still have problems as recent as last uh august um you know there were some 200 of them that were uh found that were emaciated and 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 sick and and taken to um uh, hospitals the you know the uh, international bird foundation and places like that uh because of uh, possible illness viruses you know yeah. they're getting the viruses um uh, and um, so it's it's an ongoing fight for any species and yeah the pel- pelican i just was mine at this at that particular point in my life yeah well no they are cool and striking looking like you say they are a bit goofy looking but there's something super compelling about them at the same yeah. time so i totally get the uh, get the attraction so as we've noted we've been working on this story off around for 50 years uh not constantly of course but but overall in sort of broad strokes so it's clearly a story you believe needs to be told and kept needing to be told why uh, well growing up 
uh, with a psychiatrist in the family, and 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 your brother, brother Gordon, I don't know, you know, but uh, is probably very uh, in tune to this. At a very young age, uh, my psychiatry father took me aside and taught me a word and the meaning empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that doesn't that's not a word that's bounced around a lot of houses in those days. You know, back in the in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. And empathy, obviously, as we all know, means to be able to understand where the other person is feeling and coming from. Uh, so Kai's message is for us to be empathetic of what it is to, to live in mankind's realm, uh, meaning that that you know, if if I'm a if I'm a bird and you know people are shooting BB guns at me or 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 people are are you know sending dogs after me because I you know they don't like my poop on my my dock um, or even worse you know I'm, they're putting poisons in the in the water to kill me uh, you know we don't and people don't think about that you yeah. know, that's why like I, they, that's why there's shadow figures in this book because they're just doing what they do and and we don't have empathy for the pain that animals feel one of, one of my stories is, is when I was eight, you know, eighteen, and we went fishing. I mean, remember, I was the the, um, uh, the NRA group that were taught how to shoot guns and how to fish, and 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 um, uh, I caught a fish one uh, on one of our trips, and we were out trying to get. Uh, the, uh, like a, a swordfish or marlin or something that make us manly. You know, we were 18 years old. We wanted to be men. And and I caught a shark and I, I reeled the shark in. I was the only one that was, uh, uh, that had caught anything that day. And so the, the skipper of the boat, who was also 18, handed me a baseball bat with two big nails, six inch nails in it. And it said, your catch, your kill. So of course, like any obedient uh, teenager at the time, I beat this poor fish to death. Mm. And in in the, at that process, I'll never forget this, Duncan. He stared at me the entire time, you know, just telling me, "Hey, this is not a fair fight. This is not this is not the way things are supposed to be." Yeah. And I felt I felt a guilt that day at eighteen uh, that completely changed, you know, my 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 feelings about hunting and fishing and killing and yeah. and all that. Um, that uh, uh, was really strong. Um, and um, so, anyway, that that's basically. Kai is is me in a right. in a bird body saying you know let's have some empathy for nature let's 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 think about what we're doing to nature and how they re- how they feel when they're injured hurt displaced you know think about the uh, the developing and they come in with the huge machines and they just displace thousands of species you know you don't yeah. have to build to cement over it. Yeah, no, it sounds like really, uh, given a combination of things, there was always a drive to get this thing published or finished slash published. And I'm sure there was periods where you, I mean, periods along the journey where you just question like, geez, uh, is this book really going to happen? Or am I just kind of flirting with something that all these years that's just maybe not going to quite get there? I mean, what, what kind of battle with doubts and stuff did you have? Oh, huge. Yeah. And any 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 uh, author uh, will tell you the same thing. Um, the uh, and I and I I'm going to say this, and it, I don't mean this is any 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 bad feeling or anything like that. But the the industry of of uh, being an author and being published and all that is a very difficult industry to be successful in and sure. to, to enter into. Because it's kind of close. It's close to those people who are already successes, and yeah. and, uh, and the people who are out there scrambling to try to try to get somebody to read a book it is, you know, it's very very difficult. So I I'm 
still doubting and having having feelings of, of insecurities about the book only because it's you know it's it's just beginning and yeah it's only been published six months you know well more than six months i think it's now eight and uh, but we got a, a review from uh Kirkus reviews right which is that's, huge that's Huge. Yeah. So that really, really helped me out, and I really, you know, the whole at my attitude just kind of took another step forward on that. That's great. So here you are. You kept going. You were resolute. You kept up against how difficult it is to crack the industry, whatever. You got the book published. It's out. You got a Kirkus review. So I think even now you're probably still trying to figure out like where. One of the things you mentioned earlier in the conversation is where is this book aimed at? Do you picture kind of a core audience for Flying Kai, or is there like in this case multiple kind? of focused uh, audiences that you think can and should be reached by this book and responding to it yeah i'm going counter counterculture to the to the uh, uh to what uh, the professionals in the business say because i think it's it's multiple uh genres and you know obviously it's the ya it's clean it's, it's not dystopian it doesn't have monsters or evil things in it yeah but yet it's 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 written you know in a challenging manner vocabulary wise i mean i i did make it easy for a 12-year-old to read it, but at the same token, the storyline keeps them interested in it. For sure. Um, I've gotten any, you know, anybody that's uh, uh, interested in the ocean, uh, there's a lot of ocean questions about uh, what is the future of our ocean. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've got, um, uh, uh, so I think it's, it's multi, uh, it, it, like I say, it's, it's the 80-year-old. I, I have people my age who, who, which I'm not quite eighty, but yeah. but I, you know, it's it, it's a it's a book that is is entertaining as well as um, um, some of the old fishermen that I used to fish with with, you know, said it was it, it was a eye opener to them, it, you know, knowing that how many fish they killed for no reason, yeah, um, in fact when we were young and uh, uh, very powerful to them, so. Yeah, I I just hope that the word gets out. I just hope that more people read it. Uh, education, I think it. You know, I have a, a, a very dear friend who you know who wrote on the back of the book. You know, Kai's coming of age story is a must read in middle and high school classroom. Yeah, uh, and um, and I, because it is challenging and it is, but it is contemporary in the sense of what young people are thinking about. Yeah, no, I think it, I mean, it really does, like you say, kind of unusually, because a, a lot of books, especially these days, it's hard to find an audience, it's hard to get in people's hands, it's hard to get reviews, it's hard to get noticed. But I mean, this one really unusually is legitimately for multiple audiences and it's classically YA for sure. But I also think older folks like me, <laughs> of, of all different kinds, including distraught about the impact of climate change, I mean, this is going to reach them on a maybe slightly different level than the YA readers, you know, have kind of a, an important and profound impact on them. So I just think you've got like young folks, old folks, folks in between, and um, that potentially at least could really, you know, read and respond to this uh, to this book. So I guess a lot of it's um, kind of in the hands of the gods in terms of like things that that's click. Exactly but, but, right. but getting a Kirkus review, that's a classic major leap forward for anybody trying to do what you're doing. Well, it's it's a it's been a it's been an adventure and i and i have learned a tremendous amount of things not only about the, the book writing industry but also about the the book itself and about the about nature and any of it you know and, and just real quickly I don't, I don't know but you know in my historical writings for southern california which i, I write for an online newspaper i've come up with the term the golden age of california 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and my golden age, my golden age, and I'm sure somebody could argue with this, but I think it's pretty accurate, goes back to your grandparents and my grandparents, about 19, the year 1900, when it was still an agricultural and a wide open, open spaces, and and everything was, was the way that nature had it, um, uh, you know, wanted it to be. And then our parents came along, and they still got to enjoy that. Uh, you and I came along, our generation came along, and we enjoyed it till probably about 1970. Yeah. And in, 19, in 1970, wide open development and wide open growth, the freeways, you know, we're going from three-lane freeways to six-lane freeways, you know, and yeah. you know, or whatever. And it just... It just was. It was just a massive amount, and I'm sure that's kind of why you're where you are, and you're doing your your story. You know, your stories about uh, talking animals. Well, it's certainly uh, an influence for sure. And yeah, I wanted to get in some of your relocation, which maybe we'll in a sec. But one thing I wanted to ask about, to me, an important part of the book, it's kind of a striking passage, kind of I guess, is when Kai and Poncho happen upon a place that's uh, they said at the beginning, kind of a thinly disguised facsimile of SeaWorld. Why was that important for you to include? in the book and, and what is it meant to convey uh, well as children again you and I went hand in hand with our parents to see you know there's actual sea world that was down there in um, uh, in in Palos Verdes and we were just fascinated by the the animal the, 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 the fish and the animals and whatever else we saw and and it got me thinking about uh, you know the lions and tigers in the in the zoos you know I mean we go there and get fascinated by the lions and tigers in the zoos as, as young people yeah but really what what is it like for you know for the the, the animals to be living in in that environment yeah and when I started writing about this the, the sea lions and how perfect their coats were and how you know the water never changed temperatures and how they never had to get their own food and how they, they had perfect health care you know it just it just struck a chord that you know I mean these are not these are pets these are you know these are wonderful pets that we get to enjoy but from an from a uh, wild animal's point of view yeah you know there's got to be some some something going on inside their heads that uh, maybe maybe they enjoy it maybe that's the best thing for them but I kind of question that a little bit yeah no and one of the things that was uh, really great and again kind of a really distinctive and original was that that Kai our, our, our pelican hero and Poncho the 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 booby bird that are on this kind of odyssey together are talking with these animals that are at, at this kind of version of sea world and it's puzzling out like well how great is that or what's the trade-off and anyway it was just to me it was just a among many parts of the book just a really striking and provocative element of thinking about captive animals performing animals and what it's really like for them and uh, something that we talk about a lot on this show obviously but, uh, but and another example of us using nature as a as a business tool yeah. you know i mean we use we, we use it for our benefit you know, we don't use it for nature's benefit. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm done. That's good. That's fine. Okay. So we're getting, unfortunately, kind of close to the end of our time, but there's a few more things I want to address to you. And one of my guess is we try to talk about, as you say, getting this out to different audiences, YA, older folk, people in between. What will success with the book look like to you? I mean, in a perfect world, what impact will Flying Kai have on its readers? I've, I've always been sort of a B kind of kind of guy. I'd never been the A guy that was on the on a roll and it was it was famous for his academics or famous for his athletics or famous for anything like that. Yeah. So I don't I just 
I've been a B player. I've always been, you know, good at what I do, but not great, you know. And so to me, the minimum is I just want this to be a B book. I want this to be a successful book that people enjoy and like. He, to become an A player in this, it would probably have to go on film or something like that and, and do something pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, uh, which it could, and I've had a lot of people mention that. But I'm not, I'm not you know, putting that in as, a, as that's a, a must for success. Success the, is just, a, well, hearing you talk about it, you know, that's success to me is, this, um, is, is people are really starting to enjoy it. Yeah. And, and after 50 years, that, that's kind of nice to hear. Right. It's time. Like, get rid of the people. Uh, come on. I put, I put 50 years into this thing. Read this baby. Yeah. But again, I think I think it is the kind of thing that momentum will build. Maybe it'll be slow just because, again, part of what makes it absolutely a great read also makes it a little bit distinctive for people that are, again, just facing a barrage of books and reading choices every day. But I think things will start to happen. There'll be another Kirkus-like thing or some other major review or somebody else will talk about it or some other uh, TV thing or web thing or whatever and pretty soon people say hey uh, maybe I should check this out and I just I just see a, a really maybe slow initially but a build coming and uh, people are starting to read this thing and then saying to their friends like what did you read recently that you like and it's like this this book Flying Kind believe it or not it, let me tell you about it <laughs> and then yeah. you know pretty soon they're reading it too so let me ask you too what does your book do you think say to climate change deniers or what do you well, say to them really you know, yeah you know I'm a Historian. So I go. I have history of Southern California, where the Pacific Ocean reached all the way to Nevada. You know, so we're talking, you know, ancient, ancient, ancient history. Yeah. So you know, so that the the climate is always changing. The climate is always, uh, you know, the Earth is changing. You know, the oceans are are, you know, ice ages versus non ice ages, and and I can go through a, a thousand things that says, you know, there's there's no climate change, uh, but there is. There always. Yeah. I think hum, humans exasperate it. I think humans, um, uh, you know, well, just like we're talking about the, you know, the, the extinction of animals, and we're talking about things like that. Humans are devastating to nature. Yeah. Um, and um, whether, you know, how much the rising oceans are today based upon what we're doing in our dirty, dirty lifestyle, uh, I don't know. I mean, I really honestly don't know. But uh, it's, you know, Mother Nature is going to come and, and, and teach us a lesson. And I think she she's doing that right now right um, well even as i was reading flying kai we had uh it was around the overlapping the period of, of hurricane ian and of course there's a there's a hurricane not to give too much away in the book and i just thought well this is this is kind of what exactly what people are talking about and i mean there's always been hurricanes but i mean i think everybody's pointing to uh warmer waters different factors whether it's uh, hurricanes or fires out in uh, the west coast or elsewhere that that are significantly different than they were and there's only so many causes you could point to for why it's as severe or or dramatic as it is now compared to what it had been. Yeah, and in, and in our short 100 year lifespan, give or take, uh, you know, we have no clue what it was. Uh, you know, what climate change is is really like. Yeah, we see it. We think we see it happening, and I think it is is happening. But uh, uh, you know, and I'm all for cleaning up the environment. There's don't don't get me wrong on that. Yeah, but uh, uh, but it's just you know, <laughs> Mother Nature does what she wants to do. 
Right. Well, so you better shape up, I think, because Mother Nature yeah. does do exactly what she wants to do. So here's a, here's a chance to heed some warnings and uh, make yeah, things uh, less less ugly for Mother Nature when she uh, wreaks or whatever her next round of havoc might be. So, Duncan, we have just about reached the end of our time, but we've been speaking with Duncan Forge. The book is Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale. Uh, his website is Duncan Forge, and that's F-O-R-G-E-Y, DuncanForge.com. So you can get the book there. You can find out more about him and his other work and his writings and stuff. Duncan, good luck. I just hope this thing, I think, like I say, it's going to be a nice slow build, some momentum will build, and pretty soon, like, you'll see uh, people in the next aisle or on the beach or somewhere, like, with flying kai in their hands, so... Uh I hope, I hope so, and, and thank you for your wonderful, kind words. I really do appreciate Absolutely it. Absolutely no. Really, really mean oh. it. That's great. All right, take care. And also, you're my favorite Duncan I've spoken to on the show. And, and, I, and say hi to the family. Okay, I sure will, man. Okay. All right, thanks. In a moment, I'll speak with 12-year-old Vegan Evan, considered the world's youngest certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. He'll be appearing at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest November 5th at Perry Harvey Senior Park, participating in the animal rights panel scheduled for 3.30 to 5 p.m. that day. That conversation is coming up in just mere moments. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is a Tom Shalhoub with a piece called Animal Shows. In today's comedy corner, on Talking Animals on WMNF. I like my animal shows, right? You like the animal shows? Yeah. Guys like animal shows, right? Come on, we work all day, we want to go home, we want to watch animals eat other animals. It relaxes us, I don't know why. I've noticed something, I watch these shows all the time though. Don't they always try to make you feel guilty? Just for being human? They give you that human guilt trip at the end of the show, no matter what species of animal it is, they always come in with a deep voice at the end of the show when the sun is setting, the guy's like, the snow leopard has but one natural enemy. Man. Like I'm killing the snow leopard. I don't even know what it is. I saw this the other night. I got home on TV. This is what's on TV. The condor. The condor is flying in slow motion over the Grand Canyon. And the guy with the deep voice is like, the condor used to have the Grand Canyon to himself until the white man came. I'm like, oh, you gotta make it racial, huh? Like the condor cares about that. Like there's some black guy hiking in the Grand Canyon. The condor's like, you're okay, dude. It's the white man I got a problem with. That was Tom Shalhoub in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Animal Shows taken from his album Overconfident. Now it's time to speak with Vegan Evan, who will be appearing at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest November 5th at Perry Harvey Senior Park, participating in the Animal Rights Panel scheduled that day for 3.30 to 5 p.m. He's 12 years old and he's with us now. This is Vegan Evan on Talking Animals on WM. Good morning, Vegan Evan. Morning, Duncan. Hello. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals today. Well, I'm glad I'm here. Cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here, too. So you're the world's youngest vegan lifestyle coach and educator, from what I'm told. I am. I'm the only minor with the certification. I had to go up to New York City to get that certification, and it was like, I believe, 50-something hours. Wow. Stuff. But That's really impressive. I was going to ask you about the training. So the training was in New York City, and you had to accumulate 50 hours of the training to qualify to get your certificate? Might have been just more, just less than that. But okay. But a bunch of presenters that came in. And yeah. We had to read a whole bunch of stuff, but it was worth it. We learned a lot. 
That's great. So now if someone said, hey, Vegan Evan, I need some coaching with my embracing a vegan lifestyle, you could do that, right? You're, you're authorized and certified to do that now, right? I am. I could, I could help them in any way they need. That's great. Now, have you, have you had any clients of that kind since you got certified? Well, I haven't exactly had clients, but there's a lot of people who have asked questions. Okay. A lot of questions, and I always try my best to answer them. That's nice. And it seems like a lot of the questions are about protein and omega-3s. I was just going to ask you what the sample questions are, and I'm sure, yeah, almost inevitably protein's got to be like kind of one of the key questions. So what, what are people's concerns about protein when, uh, when they ask you those questions? So for some reason, people seem to think that protein comes from dead animals, which it doesn't, which is really weird that people think that. Because yeah. all protein comes from plants. All protein does. Yeah. And it's the plants from the oxygen, soil, from the water. Yeah. They size amino acids with photosynthesis into protein. And that's where all protein comes from. Now, some animals might eat the plants and they get protein. Right. But a lot of it gets digestive and there's fat and cholesterol. The animals have to hurt. It's a whole big thing. So you could just, if you're worried about protein, then you should be eating plants. Right. You're actually saving some important steps, not to mention saving the animals, by just going directly to the plants for your source of protein. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, so what what are some of the other major questions or most frequent questions that seem to come up when the people ask your uh, help? Well, another thing, uh, people don't seem to, a lot of people don't seem to think that animals can, like, feel emotions and pain. Mm. Like, mainly it's people that don't think fish can feel pain or emotion. Yeah. And just because fish are, like, they're underwater and we can't hear them the same, they have the families and the feelings the emotions too they know like bad experiences like they try to stay away if there's a big fish that they think is going to eat them that just shows you that they have a brain they can think for sure well they might hurt me i don't want to do that they have like a whole bunch of different feelings the same as we do they can be happy they can be sad if another fish dies. Yeah, well, I think you said something super important there just a second ago when you said, just like we do. Because I think so many people don't make the comparison, and if they did, they would really kind of think just inherently differently about things, right? A hundred percent, because look, if if one of us weren't a human, if let's say we were a cow, and that's just the body we were born into. Yeah. It was a cow. And then we had to go through being raised and, like, being fattened up and having your death date already decided on the day of your birth. I feel like if people could just, like, understand, like, just what that feels like, just have empathy about what those animals are going through. Yeah. That they were the animals, the whole world would be different. That's for sure. Well, tell me a little bit, just so we don't run out of time, tell me a little bit about what you'll be saying when you speak on the animal rights panel at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest coming up. Can you give me a little sense of what you'll be talking about? Really, really excited about the Tampa Bay Veg Fest. Yeah. It's been one of my favorite Veg Fest for the longest time. I've been speaking there ever like, since I can remember. Yeah. I, I love the Veg Fest. There's always been so many awesome speakers and vendors and amazing, amazing food. Yeah. I that when they weren't, they weren't doing the food, the veg fest for a, a few years due to, I believe, COVID. And right. Other- yeah, they had to stop for a couple of years, which is too bad, but everybody's excited that it's coming back this year. They're back now. They're back now. Yeah. 
really, really excited to be on this animal rights panel. Yeah. And, and any indication, any uh, little sneak preview you can give us about what you might be talking about that day? Well, I'm going to be talking mainly about activism. Okay. Ways that you can get active through your everyday life, that you don't have to be in some special organization or anything. You Just through your ordinary life, you can do stuff. That's great. Someone that is looking at, like, a dairy auction in the grocery store, just say, well, did you see they got the new so-and-so brand that's non-dairy? Or, like, do you see someone looking at the vegan stuff, say... Oh, are you, like, doing any plant-based stuff? Or Yeah. So, uh, Vegan Evan, I'm so sorry. We're just about at the end of our time, but I really want to thank you. I want to remind people that you'll be at Tampa Bay Veg Fest speaking, and you can find Vegan Evan at veganevan.com and on social media pages, including uh, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much, Vegan Evan.